0: Hello and welcome to Champions for NorCal Kids. I'm Wendy Dickens, Executive Director at First 5 Shasta.
1: And I am Heidi Mendenhall, Executive Director at First 5 Tehama. We would like to invite you to join us as we highlight the great champions who work for the youngest members of our community in Northern California.
0: Our goal is to share the wealth of our community with our community.
1: Well hello Heidi, how are you today? So good, happy to see your face and have our amazing guest Julie Kurtz with us. Hello, we're excited. (laughs) Yes, Yes. Yes, so we asked Julie to come and have a conversation because as you all know we like lifting up amazing people that do wonderful things for young children and Julie is that person. She has really, um, Well, good. Okay, let me see if I can just do it off the top of my head. Let me see if I've got your bio. Okay, let's see how we go. Um, This is great, right? (laughs) So, I I have gotten to work with Julie for close to maybe seven or eight years now, and we first met when she was with WestEd, and then she left to just really um, champion her life's passion, and is the co-founder of the Center for Optimal Brain Integration. Um, and is now, um, what What do you have, five or six co-authors of five or six books, lead author of at least two children's books that I know of, as well as other, um, the four or five co-author books around trauma-informed practice for early childhood education, family engagement, um, and really just lifting up the voices of early childhood educators, families, and children that have experienced trauma and how we can support their healing.
2: Yep. You got that. That was like amazing. Wow. That was pretty, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. And I haven't
0: gotten to, you know, um, work with Julie as, as long as Heidi, but I know she's done a lot of wonderful trainings here for our childcare providers, our FFNs, our early um, educators here. So I have just appreciated getting to kind of vicariously learn through the other people who are attending. And then I also attended one of the trainings. So I think it's just been really wonderful to have you a part of our communities here in the North state, because you have so much to offer as far as information, wisdom, insight, etc. So I'm excited about our conversation today too. So thank you so much for coming.
2: Thank you for having me. I feel like I should um, live up in your county since I'm there so much. So I, I know, feel-
0: right? We appreciate oh,
2: totally. that.
0: Totally. <laughs> so we connected. should buy you a house
2: here. No. I know. <laughs> I feel so connected. I want to live up there. So I'm just really grateful to be here and talk about this subject.
1: I know. So tell it if you, when you describe what you do, right, because you're an author, a, a center director, a trainer, a trainer of trainers, like how do you describe your work?
2: I think that the first thing I say is that I literally talk about when I was a little girl, you know, the trauma that I went through and, um, I had no idea that I would be doing this. I just wanted to help kids and help people. And I have done that my whole life, just working in psychiatric hospitals and group homes and residential treatment facilities and, um, working in, um, non-public schools and really, foster care and doing that my whole life, trying to make a difference and then moving into the field of early childhood for a number of years as a mental health director and a deputy director. And then the the universe just brings whatever you want to call universe for you is
1: yes, yes, brings yes.
2: where you're supposed to be and brings all those puzzle pieces together and synchronistically got to write these five books, as the co-author, um, trauma-informed practices and trauma-informed family engagement, and leaders and organizations, and culturally responsive self-care. Our fifth book is coming out in the spring on trauma and play. And um, yay! I feel like you know this has become what you said, Heidi. My my passion and my journey. My journey has been to heal my own trauma. And then all of a sudden, thank you, the you, know, universe brought me this journey of being able to turn it outward for others and give them a sense of hope. And what's really scary is that 50% of our children under the age of six have experienced trauma in the United States before the pandemic and 250 get expelled from preschool every single day in the United States, higher than any grade. Whoa, Which is whoa, whoa. crazy. We're going
1: right? to have to say that
2: again. You're okay. Like, hold on a second.
1: Hold yeah. on. <laughs> so crazy. 50% of yeah. all children under the age of six in, in the US. United States, pre-pandemic, pandemic. pre-pandemic,
0: yep. pre-pandemic. So that doesn't even count the trauma that was experienced during the pandemic yep. based and on, the
1: and the loss that doesn't necessarily turn into trauma, but when not buffered by an adult to process through can turn into trauma.
2: It's one in in 450 kids have lost a loved one due to, to the pandemic. Yeah.
0: It's so sad. You know, I think um, it's a great point too. And I think the other point that you, you made, which is, you know, the ex you know, the expulsion rate for children who are in that age group, which, you know, is just devastating to me because there's a lot that is going on. That's very age appropriate and behavior equals something right? Like there's a reason. Um, and so it's just sad that the, the reaction is to immediately expel instead of trying to figure out some way to assist this child into coping in a different manner.
1: Right. And assist ourselves into, you know, kind of parenting ourselves or teaching ourselves, what can we do to, to lower whatever our reaction is so that then we can do right. Like it's this process
2: that's so hard. Yeah. I think that's it. And I feel like, um, it's children under the age of six have very immature nervous systems, right? They just, you yeah. know, on the planet four years when I don't get the candy bar, that's the end of my life. That literally, <laughs> wait, hold on. That happens to me when I'm an adult, but like, When you get triggered emotionally, you don't have years and years of experience of developing regulatory strategies and ways to calm your body. And you rely primarily on the adult to be the calmer of your nervous system until you start to build slowly these strategies. So you're right, Heidi, we need adults that are regulated, bigger, stronger, wiser, and kinder who recognize I need to calm my own body first so that I can respond to this child in a way that's going to lead them to regulation. But many adults, and then I'm going to pause, see what your reactions are, but or your additions. Many adults believe that we're spoiling a child when we coddle them, and they're not going to be ready for kindergarten, when I think we're the conductor of a nervous system. The calmer uh, we can help children's nervous systems be, the more it opens their cortex to think and listen and learn and engage. And when that happens, slowly over time, we can begin to add strategies to their toolkit to buffer their own stress and that's where the the healing from trauma comes in. And that's where the teaching of children uh, to become humane <laughs> comes from. It starts with an adult co-regulating a child a bazillion times. Mm-hmm. And they feel safe in the world. And when they feel safe in the world, then they can start to learn all the strategies. So I, I'm going to pause there and see if you have any ahas or additions to add to that. Oh, Oh, so many things. So many
1: things, right, Heidi? Yeah. You know, I'm not going to say I haven't had that feeling too, because there's this moment in parenthood when you can't get the reaction that you want out of that child, right? Like you're just, all you need in the world is for them to get in the car. That's it. Yes, yes. and at that moment, I, you know, there's that, like, I don't have the energy always to just pause and imagine me giving you your energy and what you need. And so because that, I, I mean, this is absolutely what my, my brain does. And then I think, just listen, right? And so then you get into the, like, I don't, I'm, I'm tired of giving you all the energy, just go. Yes. Um, and the bummer of that is sometimes it works, right? <laughs> the bummer is that we can shame kids into doing what we want. And when we shame them into doing what we want, we're not offering the toolbox of their own self-control. And I think that's where we, for me anywhere, that's why I get into these hard conversations because what we want as, as parents and educators is to see what we're doing work. And sometimes we can turn, turn behavior on shame. We aren't teaching strong social, emotional coping skills. They aren't becoming resilient. They aren't building the toolbox they need. Um, Anyway, that's where my brain went.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm well, I, was,
1: away,
0: but I want to hear Wendy too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was trying to find, I read, th- I read something today that resonated with what you were saying. Um, and I, and I think, you know, the problem is, is that as a society, we've gotten away from what we used to do as far as even just having our babies with us all of the time. We've these yep. very, um, rugged individuals right like that became the thing and when you don't have your baby with you all the time and picking them up and and doing your work around the house with the baby strapped to you because you know even the settlers did that for the longest time they were out in the fields all of them but we've forgotten that we believe that we were supposed to just leave them to cry it out um we don't get what we need and then as an adult we also don't regulate our own emotions and and so what you were saying completely makes sense because we have a bunch of adults who grew up thinking that you should be able to do this automatically and that's not something you can do automatically you were taught in the past and we've gotten away from that as parents as teachers of their own children around emotional self-healing and emotional control right and so regulation um it's really
1: interesting we were taught right like the skill set was taught and all of a sudden we're just not teaching it
0: we're not, I mean, I don't know if it was all of a sudden over time, right, okay, true story, happened, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, history uh, started to change, you know, and, and, and just like epigenetics, when you think about, you know, the DNA expressions around trauma and how they, you know, are expressed later on for adults over time, the same thing happened with our ability to have emotional regulation because modeling is the best way to, to train or teach any child. And then when you're not do, helping them through those pieces around that as an adult, they're not going to be able to. So you have a bunch of people who don't know how, unless they've been through a kind of an educational process through therapy or through their own educational attainment or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, you know, one of the things that it, you know, what I read today, and I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly because I can't find it, but I, but what basically it was saying is that if we can start to recognize the fact that emotions, we can't necessarily do anything about, but if we can give ourselves a pause then we can choose the behavior in which we exhibit based on that emotion, right? So, emotions you don't have control over. What you have control over is the behavior in which you exhibit. And I think that's what you're basically saying, Julie, right? Like, if the adults in the child's life could take a pause yep, and yep. then regulate themselves, yep. they're modeling for one, but for two, then they can actually see. That the behavior that four-year-old is exhibiting right now by biting or whatever the case might be in their classroom is really about the fact that their whole world is devastated right now because they didn't get that toy. Yep. And the only way they know how to express that is through sometimes nonverbal
1: ways. Yeah. You yep. know, it's and a even more feeling. so, they might not be safe. They might right. not feel safe. Not getting yep. that toy means I'm not safe.
2: Yep. I just for a second thought that I was in a training. For some reason, I was like, <laughs> I feel like I'm listening to you and Heidi and I'm like, this is a great training. Oh, wait, I'm on a podcast. <laughs> I literally was blown away. Like it, What you said, uh, Wendy, reminded me of Dr. Victor Frankel's quote that in between when we get triggered and we react, there's a space in between. And in that space is the power to choose. And what happens is our brain... Fires from the amygdala, the inside of the limbic brain, when our emotions get really bigger, we get overwhelmed. It fires a thousand miles an hour down to our fight, flight, freeze brain to wake up. And that's where we don't have a pause. And yet, when we can cultivate a pause, when we know and recognize we're triggered from a child's behavior, if we just take a breath or count to 10 or say a prayer or a mantra or quote, step back or have someone else step in and we just cultivate the pause, it gives some time. What's really interesting is the amygdala sends signals to your fight flight freeze brain a thousand miles an hour and Heidi knows only one short mile an hour up to the cortex to allow you to think and reason. So for adults, the more we cultivate that pause that Wendy talked about, the more we can keep ourselves from reacting harshly. But I will say that most of us are raised by parents that cast the spotlight of our attention on the external all day and day out. And so we grow up and we wonder, why is the planet such a mean place sometimes? It's because we all grew up being able to cast the spotlight outward on all the things we had to do in life and the soccer games and the cleaning the chores and doing the homework. But very rarely did adults cast the spotlight of our attention inward on one, the feelings that we have and how to notice the feelings and how to calm the feelings and then how to access my thinking brain and so that's kind of where we have to start. And yet we have to do, I think a little of what Heidi's saying is give ourselves grace because it is hard to be a parent. So half the time we're yelling and trying to get the child out the door, but the other half <laughs> of the time we have to pay attention to what am I trying to teach so that there's a chance my child grows up to have some skills, <laughs> of being able to recognize their feelings and regulate their feelings and solve problems in a way that doesn't hurt others themselves or the things around us. And so um a good yeah. Ugh,
0: I love so, that. And I think,
2: sorry, I did I just, just have to you,
0: you have know, to go, go. I have to.
2: Um no, I, I just have, I have so much so, passion right now. I have to get I it out. There's so <laughs> much
0: going on in here. No. Um, I just it really speaks to why we have some of the things happening currently Mm. in our communities right and and you know Heidi's heard a lot about what's been happening um in some of the northern parts of you know in in Shasta County um and I think a big piece of that has to do with what you were just saying which is you know we have always had these other things outside of us instead of looking and and feeling like we have some ability to you know take some control of our own. And I think that what has happened in certain circumstances is that people lash out because, and they don't even realize it, it's very unconscious, Um, but they are, that's what they're doing. They're, they're an adult lashing out at other adults and don't have any care about, you know, others around them. And I'm not talking about those who are saying like, if it is self-preserving for me to take a pause, for me to take a minute, for me to not go to that function, for me to set some boundaries that I, I need to do for myself. And, and what I need to do for myself is very important. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who are like, I'm so angry about everything that I don't care how, what I say to you, because your feelings don't matter. Yeah. Um, and I don't care how I treat you because I'm angry. Um, and it's, you know, that whole like talk about, you know, um, you know, they used to call it basically myth, uh, Well, basically, the premise is that you are, you know, punishing others for what you're feeling inside, right? Like, so the goals of misbehavior is what they used to talk about, right? And it's really not something that's consciously happening for someone, but it is definitely something that's there. And it's very present right now in some of our political landscapes across the nation. Um, And a big piece, I think, is because we have never given people the time or the opportunity to think introspectively. And I think that they get hung up on verbiage. So they get hung up on the the word yoga or meditation, instead of really thinking about how, when you are introspective and you're being mindful, you're really looking at your whole body internally and deciding how then do you want to react and how then do you need to for your own health and benefits of that health, right?
2: Um, So anyway, I I just, I wanted to thank you for saying it because it just (laughs) seemed like All these things. Yep, (laughs) yep. And Heidi, I know you were passionate about something when I was, but now I'm on a whole different place. (laughs) I know we do this. (laughs) I
1: I just, um, so it took me here, Wendy. It took me to yes, and then I went to empathy, and I thought, man, empathy requires pause. Yes, I mean empathy is a natural skill that we can foster and develop. Or it's it's on a continuum, but it requires us to feel some level of pause. And then I went to this place of pain and that, that also we're not necessarily taught how to feel pain, how right. to process pain. And if we have this history that you're saying, and we're almost, you know, punishing outwardly or, or disengaged and not, and not engaging in empathy, True. Yeah. so much of that can be because of like, well, I, I just, I don't know how to process that pain. So not me, not now I can't, you know, and that just, um, I feel when it goes back to even.
0: Yeah. And I think pain and anger, right? Like we immediately as adults, I feel like I've worked, I worked in child welfare for a long time and with foster parents and foster youth and all of that. And I think one of the things that was really helpful for them to understand was that sometimes we will say anger But really, there is a lot more underlying feelings happening. But we've never given ourselves that pause that you spoke about, Julie, to give ourselves the moment to really identify what truly are we feeling. And, you know, it's not anger necessarily, but that's what we are comfortable talking about. And that's what we're comfortable presenting.
2: That is so true. You both are making me think of so many things. And one of the things that stood out to me when you both were talking was that what's happened to us across our country with division is all brain based like in the midbrain and the limbic brain we're neurobiologically wired for connection which is one way we buffer our stress we become a part of tribes and families and um facebook groups and running clubs and car clubs and we become a part of these things because then we have people that have the same interests as us that like us that validate us and that is a strength that buffers our stress but when we are living in highly stressful times and we are um our alarm is going off in that limbic brain because of high levels of emotions then our survival brain kicks in and we fight, flight, freeze. And when we fight, flight, freeze, we go to our tribe and we begin to other, other people. We start to say those people who have those beliefs are, and then we start to develop narratives that bring us closer together with our tribe and divide us even more. And so you're making me think about um, how stress and trauma works and how many people during the pandemic were living in their, um, their lower part of their brain, fight, flight, freeze, survival. And the highly emotional brain, and they go together like kind of a gang in our brain where when the emotions rise up, that triggers the amygdala, wakes up the fight, flight, freeze brain, then we got to go to our tribe to make us feel like, oh, am I thinking the right things? Yes, those people are crazy over there. And this is how stress works. It's how trauma works. And it's how our survival brain works. And what you're saying is most, 90% of the time, children and adults don't have access to their rational thinking problem-solving, perspective-taking part of their brain when they're in that fight-flight-freeze. And so when we can't access our thinking, that's what you're saying, Wendy and Heidi, is people can't access rational ways. And so they lash out, attack, and hurt others. Yeah.
1: That is... I mean, when you can name the reason behind behavior, we can take a step back and, and you're still owning it, but not blaming for, right? Like, okay, how then can I process and pause and and behave differently? Yes.
0: Right. And it isn't about shaming or blaming, right? Like, it's not about, that. it's about really finding and identifying ways. And I talk about this when we do our ACEs informational sessions, like it's not about blaming anybody. It's, it's about. Now I can recognize maybe why these things are happening and I can have a different look into myself about that and and find some ways that might be helpful in learning. And it's not going to happen overnight necessarily, but learning how to cope differently with the stressors and the trauma that are occurring or have occurred in my life. And, you know, it's so important for people to begin to help as a parent or an adult in a child's life, them to start earlier in getting connected to that part of their brain.
2: And to our own trauma, because trauma, the to- the, re- the constant release of our toxic stress from trauma leaves us having to disconnect from our body to survive and disconnect from our feelings to survive. Mm-hmm. And as a little girl, one of the things I had to do was shut down my emotions to survive my father because feeling my emotions was too painful. <laughs> so shutting down and numbing out and trying to be like perfect, a perfect little girl so that I could cope And not be hurt. And one of the long-term adverse effects for me was shutting down my feelings, but as a result of shutting down my feelings, I had no feelings in college. And so I had no empathy for other people's feelings and I had no tolerance for other people's emotions. And, um, let alone my own. And then I developed these unhealthy behaviors, which led me to fall deep into a hole and get help. And one of the things that I learned as I became more, as I was helped more and more to get in touch with my feelings slowly over time, I could tolerate it. Cause in the beginning it's too scary because yeah. you're ta- basically taking down all your defenses you developed to survive trauma. And so when I finally took down all of my defenses and was able to get in touch with my feelings, I started to become more empathic to other people. I started to want to be a therapist. I started to want to help other people. And now I have too many emotions and I can't watch any television show without crying. So now I need to figure out how to shut them down. <laughs> but, but that is moment. so
0: funny you say that. Cause I, you know, my kids used to just tease me mercilessly because I would like cry or my ex-husband do like just cry at a commercial because it was like a T T touching kind of commercial yes. or whatever the commercial was. Right. And, you know, I think what I would say is like part of my growing up made me very good at being a child welfare social worker because I could compartmentalize certain things yes. and I didn't take anything very, um, Personally, when they would get angry and yell and scream at me because I you know, whatever, you know, um, but I think it didn't do me services in other ways, right? Like, so being able to do that isn't necessarily healthy either, yes. because you're holding these things in different parts of your body. Um, and then you're not letting go of some of the other pieces and when it does start to
2: open, it feels like a floodgate coming at you. Yes. Um,
0: so definitely. It does.
2: And think about children who are under the age of six, who already have a very, very immature sensory system. I think we do these social emotional curriculums that introduce them to feelings. And that's the very thing that is scary for them is to have a feeling because um, and that's the difference between social emotional curriculums and trauma curriculums, although they're aligned and you're not really learning a lot of new strategies with trauma you're learning to um, help children feel safe and be the conductor of their nervous system. When their nervous system is calm, then, then they can learn strategies and le- And when they have enough coping mechanisms, they can learn strategies that social emotional curriculum is bringing like teaching feelings, um, which might otherwise be overwhelming for a child. So it's really complicated and this is hard work. <laughs> For you sure. know,
1: something that you yeah. you were the first person to bring this to my attention. And since I've heard it a little bit is um, sensory literacy. So yes. you know, we talk about emotional literacy in our field around naming emotions. and um, I think Wendy, you and I have even talked about the the, the ad trio, the sad Glad mad, you know, and, and that we, we need to go beyond that. But
2: sensory literacy is a little different. Yeah. Than that. It's really related to trauma and it's very new. And in a very brief nutshell, The way we store trauma in our body is the only part of our brain that's lit up when we're experiencing trauma is like our very primitive um, survival, fight, flight, freeze brain, which is where there's really nonverbal words or we don't store memories in a linear way where we then remember them later. They're stored nonverbally with really intense sensations in our body. And even our feeling brain is flipped off when we experience trauma. We don't need to have a feeling, we just are in terror. So what happens is when a child gets re-triggered over and over in a classroom, for smallest reasons ever, not really because the teacher's scary or the classroom's scary, but just something reminded them of a trauma, maybe a transition or a stranger entering the class, something uneventful, and it triggers their trauma. Well, a lot of teachers will go up and say, use your words, use your words, but it's really deeply intense sensations that they feel of terror in their body, like stomach aches or itchy skin or breaking out in hives. And then they don't have the words to use to describe what's happening for them. So sensory literacy is also helping children not just describe feelings, but describe non-verbally the sensations they may have in their body. That's why I developed the app um, on that people can download for free on their iPhones or their um, tablets called Trigger Stop, Sensory and Emotional Check-In. And on our website, we've got a 22-minute video and a 16-page user guide in English and Spanish that introduces sensory literacy and emotional literacy and teaching kids to pay attention to their body Um, because sometimes that's the point of entry and healing trauma is non-verbally describing to you the sensations I may have in my body so in our trainings we give pathways to introduce that to children so I just I don't know if I explained it very well Heidi based on what you've heard but does that make sense
1: absolutely and it's that body feeling like that's right yeah
2: I think that's great because
0: I I think, um, not everyone would even think about that when you talk about trauma when you talk about, you know, they might be able to say, you know, um, that the child's having big feelings. They could say that but then they don't know the next step of it. And to also, you know, what, one of the other points that you made that I think is very important is, you know, to say to, to a child who may not even have the words, use your words, your, use your words, isn't necessarily helpful in the moment either. Right. Like, you know, um, giving them some tools around, like starting to think about how are they feeling? What's your body doing? What's your body feeling like? Um, you know, take a pause themselves um, in starting to give them some of the coping skills, which is what we're supposed to do as adults in a child's life, right? Like we need to walk them through it. They are not automatically going to know. And you made it a comment earlier um, around the fact that as an adult, sometimes we can't manage some of the things that we're asking young children to do. We just don't have people punishing us most of the time over the top of us, but we do that to children. Often we have unrealistic expectations about where they should be developmentally or where they're at because of trauma. Um, you know, we should be thinking about some of the pieces and parts that we don't even expect of ourselves, yet expect of someone who's only four, yeah. five, six, right? So I think it's it, it, you, those points are so important that you made because it just gives us a moment to remember wait a second, they may not have a word. And really, our role is to help walk them through it and to help them start to discover those things because that's really how they're going to learn and then how it's going to stay connected to them.
2: That's right. That is so true, is really tuning them inward to notice their body sensations or their feelings. And I think when they're dysregulated in the moment, that's definitely not the time to teach because that is <laughs> right. When we don't have access to our cortex to listen. So I always. If anybody takes anything away today, I would say you're a navigator and a conductor of the nervous system. So when children are dysregulated, the number one strategy, you don't even need to know if it's trauma or not. The number one strategy is to uniquely find what's going to help them feel calm and safe. And once they're calm and safe, their cortex opens for business, and then we can walk them through what they could do to help their body feel calm and safe again, so they don't hurt others themselves or the things around them.
1: I love that. I um what when earlier 25 minutes ago what I got, you know, passionate about was Wendy when you said that we used to have babies on our, you know, carry them with us. Um I like when you said that I literally felt, you know, wearing my baby because I used to wear both of my children all the time and um my second baby didn't grow inside me and so that was really important for me to get that like just energy connection if you will. Um but it then brought me to when I just don't have a strategy, I will just get down on the floor with them and like imagine a tunnel between me and them. like I'm giving them energy, you know, because sometimes I just don't know how to help. I really don't, but I'm like, okay, I'm give this to you. And it I had like when you said that, it made me like think there's this, I don't know, whatever, historical connection between me and them and feeling that, like that maybe somewhere in my DNA, I remember that we would carry them so much or something because I could feel that connection there.
2: Anyway. Uh, I'm so glad you said what Wendy said earlier, because Dr. Bruce Perry says that the ratios in our education system are ridiculous. He didn't use those words. He's more productive I am. <laughs> Yeah, but he usually. would. If we pressed him on it, I think if he we would. we really pressed him, he would. But they don't make sense. Like what Wendy said, we used to live in tribal communities where there were five adults to one child. And um, we now have developed this rugged individualism that Wendy spoke about earlier and Heidi's speaking about now where we think we have to sleep train children at three months and they need us to co-regulate their bodies. I'm not putting sleep training down. I'm just saying, pay attention to the fact that it takes 25 years to develop the nervous system of a child. And every year they get a little bit stronger, they get a little bit stronger, but, but young, young children rely on the calm of adults to calm their body. And that is not spoiling. That is recognizing the immaturity of the nervous system and how slowly over time, we begin to teach a breathing technique, or here's a teddy bear you can hold, or here's a safe space you can go to. Here's a place you can go that can help you, or an object, or words you can say to yourself. And then we slowly teach them around maybe starting at three years old some things they can do to calm their body when we're not around. And, but yes, yes, yes. That's all I have to say to everything. I love it. <laughs>
1: Well, um, we are probably turning the corner into our five for five, which is our, um, our final little thing we do. But right before we dive into that, I just am curious, um, you know, we have a lot of work going on in supporting our workforce and our health fields, our mental health and behavioral health and our education. And I'm curious, um, do you support all those fields? Is is the, you know, if they're going to look up your website, is there information for, um, Basically, you know, everybody that supports zero to five-year-old brains.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, we've got our four books and soon to be five on early childhood trauma and my children's books for elementary and early childhood. But I am, we are, we've just been asked uh, to write a proposal to Harvard Education Press to write a trauma book for K through 12, but I train all over the country K through twelve educators, early childhood educators. I train therapists. I train foster parents. I train social workers. I train behaviorists. I train in residential treatment facilities. I I train in juvenile justice systems. I train all over the country on multiples because all my experience ranges from all of those areas, and so I've got the same concrete trauma module series, but depending on the audience. Um, it'll be tailored differently so yes yes and yes to all of that so exciting I
0: I yeah I just I love all of that I love all of yes to all of that yes to all and
1: that. Shasta, Shasta Wendy oh, right, right. your
2: Shasta K through um, 12 Shasta County Office of Ed contacted me already to do some K through 12 stuff so yep we're already on that um, thanks to Heidi's connection yeah Yes. Thank you. I, I
0: think, you know, uh, you and I share some similar passions. Um, and it sounds like, you know, I might have followed a similar path in my, um, career and my, um, you know, desires and passion. And so it is interesting, you know, I've just started to breach into helping law enforcement here in Chasta County, understand trauma and trauma responses. And so um, I look forward to, you know, just learning and gleaning some more from you um, because I think you have some amazing um, information there. So thank you so much for
1: being here and we
0: are going to do our five for five. Yes, All right, you start Heidi.
1: Okay. So, um, you know, Zero to five, all about early literacy. Your favorite childhood book.
2: Are you asking me or Wendy? No, no you. You. Only you. I have two and I'm going to say them really quick because I have to selfishly say one of them is mine only because it just won the best human brain book of all time, the Understanding My Brain Becoming Humane. But besides selfishly saying my book, because I wrote it- <laughs> Not selfishly. Not, selfishly. not selfishly. I will say my second favorite book is Gabby Garcia's book, um, listening to My Body, where she teaches sensory literacy, emotional literacy, and ways to help our body feel safe. Um, oh, wait, a third one. I'm sorry. Once I Was Very, Very Scared by Shandra Gosh Ippin for children who've been through scary things. I promise I won't add another one. I hogged it. It's okay. Him. It's Great. okay. I love that one. Once I Was Scared. That's a good one, too. I love those. That's awesome. All right. So, what's
0: your favorite leadership book? What's one that you have um, as an adult? What's your favorite leadership book?
2: It feels so selfish and self-absorbed that I'm going to, the only one that comes to my mind is the one that we wrote, which is, um, you know, really looking at trauma through the lens of leaders and organizations. And I say that because I feel like we can't just put it on the backs of teachers and educators to
0: um,
2: become trauma-informed. It needs to be at the system level and the leader level. And Um, So I really believe that, you know, our book trauma responsive practices for early childhood leaders, creating, sustaining, healing, engaged organizations is critical in the early childhood field. I love that. And I think it's critical for every field, but
0: definitely in the early childhood field. But I, again, yes to all of that, all of that. All
2: right. (laughs) Okay. Your favorite childhood song. Ooh. Okay. My favorite childhood song. Well, Besides all the songs that I have embedded in my head when my you know 30 year old children were young, which is look inside your barney bag and see what you can find gadgets and gizmos and lots of things and even some old string well I asked myself this question what can I be today with imagination and the Barney bag see what we can do today I don't know why I just sang that I, I love I it, love I it. it. It's awesome <laughs>
1: yeah that's amazing
0: <laughs> oh. uh, as, as a preschool teacher former preschool teachers we just thought that was amazing and we're just <laughs> gonna let you do I um, might be right. amazing myself but yeah <laughs> Um, all right. So what is your favorite genre
2: of listening or your favorite song currently as an adult? Oh, I would have to say, um, my favorite high school band, which I secretly am still obsessed with. And because I got to go backstage and take pictures with this band when I was in high school is journey. (gasps) Oh yeah. I just love journey. I don't know why it's just, like was my obsessed band that I had. So I will always go to journey. And then secondly, Tom Petty. Oh yeah. I love yeah. it. Who doesn't We're love just all Tom the same did. age probably. Um, I know,
1: right? <laughs> star music. Okay. So, um, final, final question, you know, because we know play is so critical to um, building resilience. What's your favorite way to
2: play? This is a learning edge for me when I do our self-care trainings and we talk about our health and wellness toolkit that we give out on our website. One of them is play. And I tell everybody in the training, because of my trauma history, play requires that you let go and be present in the moment, but I'm learning. And one of the things I'm learning to do to play is to just while I go for a walk, take pictures of the beauty around me and then turn them into social media posts so that I can learn to be present in the moment and be have gratitude and be thankful for all the beautiful things around me instead of being hijacked by my anxious worry brain where I'll be walking, worrying about everything in the future and never really enjoying the moment. So it's a learning edge for me. I'm still working on it, but that is one little thing that I do besides running through the crunchy leaves during the fall.
1: <gasps> oh. Both I think it, things I love. I uh, can imagine you doing that but your your grandchildren are probably not quite walking yet, right? No. But Four next months year. old. Yeah, next <laughs> fall they're going to be in those crunchy leaves with you. Yep, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say it,
0: it's fun to like for me, you know, having kids gave you the excuse of like raking up the crunchy leaves and then going and jumping. <laughs> it's so yes.
1: satisfying. I know it's so <laughs> satisfying.
0: Oh, anyway, so thank you so much, Julie. It's been a pleasure, and you have um, made us very passionate. And we probably could talk for five more hours because oh, you know, I'm
1: sure. You know when you <laughs> when your play and trauma book comes out. Um, um, yes. We really would like to have you back. We, we talk a lot about all things, but play is a theme we bring back over and over and over again. So that'd be lovely. Yep.
2: So great. I would love to be back. I love talking with you. How many minutes have gone by? It feels like five. Thank I you. know,
1: right? <laughs> so um, we will put links in the show notes to the Center for Optimal Brain Integration. Um, but if people want to follow you on social media, how shall they find you?
2: You go to our homepage, you'll see all the social media sites. We have a TikTok channel, which is where I give parent tips. And then we have our um, YouTube channel for the Center for Optimal Brain Integration. Of course, I have a LinkedIn page. And then the Facebook page, I have one for Julie Kurtz and one for the Center for Optimal Brain Integration, where I post the same thing on both pages, except for my personal stuff. I'll post just on Julie Kurtz. You can find all those on our homepage of the Center for Optimal Brain Integration.
1: Awesome. So as usual, you know, we would not mind a five-star rating if y'all would like to rate us or share this with somebody that you think would value this information, either a teacher, an educator, or somebody maybe that's experienced trauma themselves and just wants to think about it. Thanks for joining us today.
0: Remember to visit our websites for any additional information, resources, or needs. They are listed in the podcast description. You can also email us directly at wdickens at firstfiveshasta.org.
1: Or hmendenhall at firstfivetehama.com. We truly hope you've enjoyed today's podcast and can't wait for you to join us next time.
0: Remember, it only takes one person in a child's life to make a difference in building resilience.
1: You, you can be that Can person. be that person.